Good Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston. Our co-host, Charlie, is not with us today. But don't worry, I'm talking on the line. I've got Libertarian presidential candidate Mike Termont. How you doing today, Mike? I'm doing good, Nate. Thanks uh, for having me on. It's a real joy to be with you. Uh, I'm sorry that Charlie isn't here, but I appreciate you honoring my request to get rid of him so we could have more time to ourselves. You weren't the first person to ask. Don't worry. Uh, I'm I'm sure. (laughs) It worked out just fine. Hey, I didn't ask you beforehand, what part of the country are you in? I am in Virginia. My wife and I just relocated last year from Florida to Virginia. I spent uh, 20 years in in Florida, in South Florida. And now we're in the middle of nowhere, Northeastern Virginia. Nice. I would describe where we are, but you know, there's, there's nothing nearby that anyone would uh, recognize. It's beautiful out there though. I've driven through there a bunch. And uh, if you're in the beautiful part, I mean, that's been, there's some good, some good scenery out there. Why don't you give everyone a little bit of your background? You've got a real extensive background. uh, So fill everyone in. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, I'll keep it brief because this will be the worst two minutes of your podcast, (laughs) Uh, probably the worst two minutes of your history in podcasting, Uh, but I'll I'll pick up the pace. I've had two basic careers in public policy. The first, uh, I was a professional economist for a couple of decades. I started out my career out of uh, business school with a couple of banks and went back to graduate school in Washington, D.C., The idea, Nate, was, uh, you know, to make the world a better place, you go to Washington, right? Isn't that how it works? (laughs) Yes, I saw that on uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, actually. That's what it was. And and it came true. Mr. Smith (laughs) went to Washington, he fixed the system, and now we live with a government that we all love and that stays out of our way. Uh, That didn't happen, but I did go to grad school in Washington. I went to work for... Uh, a couple of uh, government agencies. I worked for the White House for a couple of years. Uh, After that, I worked as an advocate for free markets in the financial services industry for a a long while. Uh, A buddy of mine and I launched our own business uh, in the industry of educating bankers, and we did that for uh, quite a few years. I taught economics at uh, three, uh, three different universities. And and then as a uh, second career, I went to work as a police officer in in South Florida, in Broward County, Florida. I was on the road for 11 years until about a year and a half ago. I was on the road from uh, oddly from age 49 to 60. It was a great experience. It like like any job change, it's it's a different experience than what you anticipate, right? You never perfectly uh, nail your expectation. So I became a cop around the same time as I registered uh, as a libertarian and joined the Libertarian Party a dozen years ago. So you definitely have an extensive background. And I know uh, with your background as a police officer, we'll have a good conversation on criminal justice. And you mentioned banks. And that is also a a huge topic of conversation right now. Uh, So what... And a a real area of problematic public policy with the government uh, bailing out people that it shouldn't be bailing out. Of course, as libertarians, uh, you know, we feel like no one should ever be bailed out. And I feel that way uh, very, very strongly. 
But in this particular case, they've really chosen some, uh, they've made some awkward decisions about who they're bailing out. The wealthy people with giant deposits at Weird Bank in California and a Weird Bank in New York. If, if, if I were pressed into service to have to select who I would want to bail out, either to make the market work more efficiently or because I was afraid of institutions failing or just for politics, I can't think of any reason why any politician would choose that group to bail out. I and think, of course, I think rather than their ahead. systemic risk, it had to do with their systemic connections. Uh, would be would think, be my guess. You you may well be right. It's a very uh, weird decision. These banks, uh, in particular, do not look like other banks in the United States. So the systemic risk was really not there. These are relatively benign collapses. Uh, you know, due to weird portfolio concentrations, uh, a lot of large hot deposits that ran quickly, uh, not the kinds of things that you would normally see at big banks or even regional banks, and certainly not in community banks. So I'm not sure exactly what it is that the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department were so afraid of. I would have let these banks just, you know, fall on their nose and tell them to uh, clean themselves off later on. And of course, there were institutions that expressed a little bit of interest in acquiring these banks. You know, there's always a, a good buying opportunity when a crappy bank goes under and all of a sudden they need to sell for pennies on the dollar. And the federal government seems to have stepped in and bungled that up. So uh, the FDIC has never really been good at moving quickly. And in this case, they seem to have moved uh, quickly in order to stop others from moving quickly. A real a real disappointment. On one hand, they were weary of uh, buyouts uh, from some of the big banks because you don't want the big banks to get too big. But then they come out and they say, essentially, they're only going to guarantee the deposits at the big banks, which is going to cause deposit outflows from little banks to the big ones. Uh, in, in, in short, just doing exactly what they claim to be afraid of. All the more reason to let these institutions uh, break apart into pieces and just sell off the assets at a, you know, a, a, a courthouse auction and uh, allow those pieces to be acquired by other banks. Uh, you're absolutely right. The system that we have set up now leads to big concentrations. Not only did we go through 2007, 2008, when the federal government explicitly herded big banks into other big banks, creating you know, gargantuan uh, institutions that were large in size and small in number. But we have this regulatory apparatus that says you must go through uh, extra hoops if you're a very big bank because you're a systemic risk. And of course, that conveys the notion to the market that because they're of systemic risk, the government's going to back them up and not let them fail. And of course, this is what leads to them taking greater risks and acquiring other institutions uh, more cheaply and becoming bigger. So you're absolutely right. You put your finger on it. It, it leads to exactly the outcome that they say they don't want. Now, with your experience working with bankers, I've I've been perplexed by what happened. And other criminals. Yes. <laughs> You've worked a long, long history of working with criminals. 
did they were they not aware that the interest rates were going up that to what they were going towards and that they had all of all of these uh, treasury bonds and all that that were going to be losing their value? Have they been just not paying attention to what Jerome Powell has been saying this whole time? Uh, sleepwalking through the the whole affair. <laughs> uh, look, I think there's a couple of things that that go on. One is there is an element of as much as you and I find that funny, and they wouldn't today, right? <laughs> uh, as much as we find it funny, there is a slight element to that in the sense that uh, it, it appears as though they did not expect rates to go up as as far as they did. And therefore, they did not start adjusting their portfolios early enough. So when it really started to hit the fan, it was so late in the cycle that now they're selling stuff at a deep loss. And apparently, they didn't do a very good job of covering it up. You know, if if your institution is regulated and you've got government regulators literally employed on your bank floor, at least take advantage of it by not letting anyone else find out your condition, right? <laughs> I mean, that's your opportunity to really commit fraud on the American public by keeping everything quiet and telling nobody but your but your federal regulator. But apparently things leaked, as these things do, and people found out that the bank was having financial difficulties and that's what created the run. And this was a bank with a very strange uh, deposit portfolio. A lot of deposits over $250,000, which means they weren't insured by the federal government. Of course, now they are because the government said so. But they weren't supposed to be backed up by the government. So a lot of people ran and they had to find more liquidity. So now they're selling off the treasuries which, of course, are worth a lot less than they used to be because interest rates go up and all of a sudden they got a snowball going in the wrong direction. And so all of this is the perfect case for the government to step in with even more regulations, right? <laughs> uh, that's right. And now our show is over. Yep. Uh, have a good morning. We solved the problem. Man, I, we, Charlie and I talk all the time. We, we are somewhat envious of people, I could say on the left, sometimes on the right as well, that just think that literally what I just said is the solution to the problem. It must, it must be so easy to just say that there's the solution. We already know what it is. Problem solved. I do believe the world would be easier to navigate if one did just forfeit one's entire intellectual curiosity. If one just bought into the idea that the government was here to solve our problems, A, and B, good at it. Mm -hmm. uh, neither one of those things is true, of course, uh, although there are a lot of people who, you know, inside the government who are well-meaning. I don't mean to throw all, you know, million employees under the bus. They, they do want to do the right thing. They're just tasked with doing a lot of stupid and, and silly things. And of course... With extra regulation, not only will you drive up the cost, but you give this impression that the government will be there to, to bail out institutions. Of course, this is what happened with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in the early 2000s that led to our problem in 2007 and 2008. So, you know, we, we see government regulation causing these problems over and over and over again. And we just don't seem to be able to to, to stop these institutions, which of course is why a big part of the platform I'm running on is to end the Federal Reserve System. As an economist, I spent a lot of time working with the Fed, not as an employee, but 
working on regulatory issues. Uh, I've met with the Fed board in the boardroom itself. It's a very uh, odd experience. They do their best to intimidate you. Uh, and as much as you might think the whole thing is a, is a clown show, they do a pretty good job of intimidating you. <laughs> and I've had my uh, research on the banking industry publicly cited by the Fed chairman himself. So I've been around the, the, the garden with the, with the Fed, and I have a lot of respect for the people there. But they are utterly incapable of living up to the mandate that Congress has uh, and the American public has put on them. I think that, you know, we need to recognize that the Fed has three different functions and we need to get rid of all three. And the one that you and I are talking about, the regulatory function, I think that we need to give banks that are members of the Federal Reserve System an option to go unregulated if they want to. Most would not take us up on that, but I think that's an important option. Now, I'll be honest with you. Um, this is something where I also believe um, philosophically that we should end the Fed. I've had issues with it on a practical basis uh, because I do trade. I, I trade in the market every day. I'm, wa I'm, I'm watching the market all the time. I'm watching CNBC, yeah. all of that. And when I think about ending the Fed and switching away from it, um, I... I'll be honest with you. I fear that transition and what that would actually look like. What I wonder you is- should. What You should fear the transition. It would be rough. And I think a lot of people who say in the Fed don't take how, uh, I don't want to say terrible because I know we'd have a better monetary system afterwards, but how hard of a crash that would be if we, yeah. if we ended the Fed. In yeah, uh, I agree with you. The transition uh, is is critical. Uh, look, in Washington, you don't sunset organizations until they become completely irrelevant anyway. So the thing, the, the transition, I believe, would have to look like the following. Uh, you make the Fed completely irrelevant and then get rid of it. And the way you make it irrelevant is to take the three pieces, the regulatory piece, the monetary piece, and their balance sheet, which they use to bail out institutions. And you treat those three pieces differently. For monetary policy, you leave the Fed exist for a period of time. I don't know what that is, but you leave the Fed exist and you take away their discretion over monetary policy. So you subject them to a rules-based regime. My idea is the Milton Friedman idea of the 1980s. Uh, his idea, I'm latching onto it. I don't want to confuse your audience and suggest that Milton got the idea from me, right? <laughs> but uh, the idea is to allow the stock of money uh, in, in terms of US dollars to grow at a fixed rate per year. It almost doesn't matter what rate you pick as long as you pick a number that you're wed to. And so, so how would you, uh, you know, how would you pick that number? Uh, the logical numbers are like two, three, four percent per annum growth to take into consideration what is typically the growth rate of the American economy when you take into consideration changes in uh, population, technology, income, a number like three percent per year so that you wouldn't you wouldn't obviously have a significant amount of systemic inflation or deflation. And that way, when you're wed to a number, 
the pricing mechanism would not be subverted by people having to guess whether changes in in inflation deflation were because of Fed mm-hmm. policy. So you would know if there's uh, a run up or a run down in prices, it's because of what's going on in the economy. And that's what you want uh, for investors like you and others not to have to guess, is it because of what's going on in the underlying economy or is it because of what Fed policy is doing uh, this this quarter? And then the, so that's uh, the, the, interest, of it. the interest rate that uh, that we all pay attention to, uh, that a lot of people have been talking about uh, lately, would that float uh, freely in a, in a market yeah. instead of yeah. us having to wait for them to change it? Yeah, exactly. As a matter of fact, as a, as a technical matter, it floats now, but the Fed participates in it so closely that they, for all practical purposes, just decide. Uh, so when when you see the announcement on the Today Show every morning, what the Fed wants the interest rate to be uh, in the market for reserves that are traded among the banks, that market rate is actually set by the banks in their trading, but the Fed participates in it as the big 800-pound gorilla. And if they see it getting even a micro point away from where they want it to be, uh, they will increase or decrease reserves or participate directly in the market to get the interest rate back to what their target is. And for everyone who's listening, that's like, oh, wow, this is uh, really boring. I don't care about the Fed or anything. Well, I, <laughs> I just wanted to point out, um, we have these massive boom and bust cycles, and we just had a CPI print of, uh, we had 9.1 uh, last year, and I think we all know it was actually higher than that if you were to use the original standards for CPI. And right. the, the Fed was very slow to to act in raising interest rates. If it were a market yeah. interest rate, the interest rate would have started ticking up immediately. And I actually have a weird opinion, which is that with what happened in the financial system, if we were in a market system for the interest rates, they actually wouldn't have raised rates yesterday because the rate would have already been up where it needed to be much sooner. And they would not have been raising rates into what just happened over the last couple of weeks. You have a very strong case uh, that that is exactly right. And of course, uh, you know, the the Fed having to guess at what to do and then to, to take over action to make the markets correct in the ways they want them to is what leads inadvertently to exacerbating the boom bust cycle. And this is what we need to uh, to get rid of. And so I think that we need to get rid of discretionary monetary policy at the Fed. We need to make Fed regulation optional for banks. Banks have a, a, a fairly wide latitude in terms of who regulates them now. They can choose the FDIC, their state regulator, the Treasury Department, uh, the Fed. Uh, but I would make Fed regulation completely optional, uh, spin off the Federal Reserve banks themselves. And then I would transfer the balance sheet of the Fed to the Treasury Department and make it subject to legislation so that you wouldn't be able to bail out a bank in the middle of the night. Uh, you'd have to get Congress to vote on it, uh, which is no silver bullet, right? <laughs> Congress does vote on some pretty stupid things, yeah. but uh, at least it would slow them down and, and, and make them subject to, uh, to the, to the wrath of voters. So I uh, I want to transition from you working, you're, you're working with banks and you say, I'm sick of working with these criminals, I want to go be a police officer. And that's right. Because you work with a a better group of people. 
<laughs> and so what I'm wondering is what what were your impressions of the criminal justice system and policing before you went into it? And then how much did that change when you came out? Some things changed quite a bit. Some things didn't change all that much. Um, one of the things you learn is that you, uh, I guess there's two big things that you learn that at least I didn't anticipate, right? Some, some of your members of your audience may say, oh, you know, you're a dumb bunny. You should have known that, right? But the two things that I learned, Number one, there's a big buffer between police performance and accountability. And I don't mean that just in a negative sense, but also in a positive sense. You can do as great a job as you want. You're not getting paid anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're coming from the financial services industry, that feels a little weird, right? Mm. Uh, and that's a shame in both directions. You know, you can also screw up and it's very hard to be held accountable as well. Uh, the police unions have done, as your audience is painfully aware, unions have done a very good job of making it difficult to discipline, damn near impossible to fire police officers. You have to be uh, not only bad at your job, you have to be virtually criminally bad at your job to get fired as a cop. And we need to change that. We'll talk about that. The other thing that uh, took me by surprise a little bit the, the first one wasn't so much a surprise as much as it is sort of a, a weird feeling, you know, the, the extent to which that's the case and how important that is. Just a realization. A uh, the realization. But the following, uh, I'll admit, was a bit of a surprise. And that is the combination of the wide latitude the police officers have in any particular case. And the training we all receive to be as aggressive as police officers are and can be. And so, so what is it about the training? Uh, the training starts out with a police culture that says the most important thing is that you go home at night safe, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't want to suggest that's not important because it is important. The piece that's left out, uh, I believe at least too much left out is that it's important for everybody to go home safe to dinner that night. And I think this leads to some fairly uh, unfortunate aspects of police culture. We as police officers, and I should say we as a community tolerate to far too great an extent, aggression by police officers because it's built into the training. And interestingly, notwithstanding what a lot of folks might accuse police departments of exhibiting, this is not racist. You might be surprised how misbehaved we can be around white people. <laughs> In other words, I'm not trying to let anyone off the hook here. <laughs> I'm saying I believe the problem is slightly larger than this group of people we don't like, uh, this type of situation we're not very good at handling. I'm saying that as a police culture, it tends to be too aggressive. We're going in the right direction, right? Uh, even in the relatively brief 11 years I did the job, I saw improvement. And I should point out that I was... I was lucky. I was very lucky 
And for a couple of different reasons. One is I worked for a really good police department that we didn't have problems of, uh, you know, being accused of, you know, using force where unnecessary and, and things like that. We had a relatively small police department, a uh, hundred officers. I don't know if that sounds small or sounds That's, large. That but sounds large to me, but I'm I'm originally from a town of 300 people, and uh, I think there's <laughs> right. like I think in the, the so county officers sounds ridiculous. The county has like three police officers or something like that. So yeah, that sounds yeah. very large to me. But the town was uh, able to be well aware of our behavior. Let me put it that way. Uh, I believe that these organizations need to be as small and controlled at as granular a level as possible so that the community can exert as much influence. Your community deserves a police department that that follows your values, right? And I believe that that's easier to do when when departments are kept relatively small. The other advantage I had uh, was was having gray hair. Um <laughs> And, and I mean that not just metaphorically, but, but literally, right? Uh, when I went in at 49, I already had some gray hair, literally. And I was surprised by the extent to which, and, and this was pointed out to me by some of my coworkers, gray hair helps calm people down. <laughs> not everybody, right? Not everybody. It's not a silver bullet. It's only silver hair. Um, but there is something, you know, there is something soothing about pop showing up. I think, mm -hmm. you know, let me, let me talk to this guy. He's, he's, you know, we can trust that he's not one of these 26 year old testosterone pump dudes that uh, is not going to see straight when looking at my case. <laughs> so that turns out to be an advantage as well as having gray hair metaphorically, you know, that's uh, a huge advantage. And then the other advantage I had was I worked for a police department that, that spent most of its effort toward the drug war in a separate unit. And so I didn't have to be, you know, dragged into all that crap, which as a libertarian, you might imagine would curl your gray hair if you had to spend a lot of energy that way. Well, I was going to ask, were you, how long have you been a libertarian? Were you already a, consider yourself a libertarian at the time that you decided to become a police officer? Yeah, I registered as a libertarian around the same time. Okay. Uh, 2011, uh, my, my libertarian membership card says 2011, right. I think, uh, I think that's the year I went on the road or around, you know, within a few months of each other. Uh, I was accused when I was a member of the, of the uh, Republican party many years ago, a good buddy of mine accused me of being a libertarian. <laughs> I told him to shush, don't say those horrible things to me. <laughs> Man, you hate I, it when you get called out being accused of being a libertarian. That's yeah, you terrible. get called out. He, <laughs> he switched from being a libertarian to being a Republican, and I switched from being a Republican to a libertarian. So with this experience uh, being a police officer, how does that play into your, your plans for criminal justice reform? Well, as you might imagine, we talk a lot about criminal justice reform. Uh, we got to change the culture. That takes a long time. But there are certain things that we can do to accelerate that process. The, the big one that we talk about a lot is dumping the, 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 the idea of uh, qualified immunity and replacing it with a mandate for police officers to carry private sector liability insurance. I think that 
this does a couple of things. Not because qualified immunity affects so many cases, it actually doesn't. But the beauty of it is that as police officers, we believe that it does. So it can have an impact on how you you view certain situations and the attitude that you adopt. And what it says is that if you're not very good at avoiding uh, situations where you're, where you're uh, insurance carrier is going to have to make payments, you're going to get priced out of the market through escalated premiums, right? Mm -hmm. And the other thing that it does, and I think this is actually the most important of the two, is that it brings in a a private sector third party from the outside to create a check on the system. Unions have done a pretty good job of capturing politicians. In other words, you wouldn't probably need an insurance company coming in from the outside if politicians, local politicians, did a good job of imposing the community's values on police departments. But they don't. <laughs> uh, I think too many politicians are either knee-jerk anti-cop or knee-jerk pro-cop. Mm-hmm. And both of those leave them in a position of not really being able to do a good job with the police reform that we need. I think our world would be a lot better off when we make policing more like other businesses. To be fair, uh, not to place all the blame on the politicians, but those politicians really are the result of uh, what their constituents might punish them or reward them for, you know? So it might really be a change in the, in the public that, you know, a politician has to be pro cop, uh, blue line, all of that, or they hate police and they want to defund the police, um, or there's someone who wants to defund and they can't support because their community might not like them also. And and yeah. to me, I mean, I know that that is also the politician's fault, but that's also a really a, a market result of the people who put those, those people in it office. It is. I agree with you 100%, which is why we need to get the message out that you don't have to be, you know, all in supporting the police no matter what they do in every single case. Nor do you have to say something as silly as defund the police, because the problem is not that we have too many cops. The problem is we need to do a better job of managing them. So we need to get that message out loud and hard and fast. And of course, uh, I do believe that bringing in a check from the outside helps because the unions make it very difficult to discipline, very difficult to have any transparency around the way officers are managed. An insurance company is not going to put up with that crap, right? An insurance company is going to require all of the information there is to be had. I really everything see that the, about I really, everything. I really see the unions as uh, those have always been my biggest problem. It should be uh, much easier to fire someone who's doing a bad job at their job, just like just like any other place of business. If your boss wants to fire you because you're not producing or you're just doing a bad job or you're you're harming your customers, uh, which you're not uh, you know supposed to do unless you unless you have to as a police officer, you should be able right. to fire that person. And that threat yeah. of losing your job is very important. To all, it's you know, very important. These officers are these officers are going around like people who run banks, knowing they're going to get bailed out. <laughs> uh, well, because they do. Yeah, uh, that is true. Uh, I think this is the other group of people to whom we, we need to get the message out is the officers themselves. Uh, I still have arguments with some of my uh, former coworkers, as you might imagine, mm. right? 
Police officers are naturally fairly libertarian in the sense that they're a weird combination of being conservative and yet skeptical of their employer, <laughs> which everyone's skeptical of their employer, right? Yeah. So if you're a municipal employee, it naturally leads you to be slightly libertarian right off the bat. But we need to get the message out to cops and teachers that their lives will be better when their businesses are more like other businesses, when the good ones get paid more, the mediocre get paid less, the crappy ones get fired, and that there's a link between performance and compensation, and by the way, greater competition for your services, mm -hmm. which we don't have enough of in either one of these industries, either one of these businesses, and that is reflected uh, in the relatively low pay that so many public employees complain about. You should be able to get that message across. I mean, a lot of people have a lot of people have worked at jobs where they worked with uh, terrible coworkers who were dragging everyone down, uh, not meeting whatever it was, a deadline, a specific thing they had to do. And yep. it gets frustrated because it makes your life harder every day. Yep. And uh, yep. is that people should understand th that feeling that also if you're a teacher, your your life would be easier if the bad teachers yep. weren't there and there were yep. good teachers and as cops, uh, it, your life would yep. be easier if you weren't having to deal with a bunch of terrible coworkers. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. So getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process. I don't think I'm all the way there yet, but I'm getting close. But we're always growing and changing one thing I've learned a lot about is self-awareness and then learning how to understand situations from different points of view. So putting yourself in someone else's shoes and understanding why or how they feel the way they do about something. Now, sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way that we do in specific situations until we talk through it with people and figure out why it is that that's triggering whatever that feeling is. And that that's important, especially for the things that we talk about every day. Well, BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey to self-discovery from wherever you are. Now, I've used therapy in the past. Charlie is still using BetterHelp on a weekly basis, I believe, and I can tell you it really did help. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire, you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash GML today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash G-M-L. Uh, that it, that is right. Uh, that is right. But it is hard because it's, it's so immediate and so in front of you, you know, people don't want to give up the system that they have. The unions make it their business to protect the cops who are in the union at the moment, instead of cops who might be in the system once the system is made better. Right. Mm -hmm. This is especially true uh, of the teachers unions uh, who have no interest in teachers at uh, private schools, for example, but teachers will make more money someday. I fear that it might be closer to the end of the century. <laughs> uh, these things take so long to fix. Teachers will make more money in relative terms when all of the schools in their geographic area are competing for their services 
instead of just one big public school system. And when there's there's a way to discern which are the good teachers and which are the bad teachers, then you will really see the good ones make more money. Yep. Yeah, I, I found typically unions are good at protecting people that would not have a job if it weren't for the union. That doesn't apply to everyone, but they generally help people who would not have the job otherwise. And it undermines your interest in working hard. Mm-hmm. It undermines your interest in excelling. You know, human beings, uh, it, not you, not me, right? But but human beings <laughs> have a tendency to be lazy when they figure out, uh, you know, 85% effort gets me 100% of my pay. Well, that person's only putting in 70%. Why would I put in 85? I'll just do 70. You know, that's unfair for me to put in 100 And now all of a sudden you have a downward spiral. Yep. That's that's the way it goes. Yeah, we're not lazy. Though. It's always the other person who's lazy. It's uh, No, no, it's no. I, I didn't mean that applies to you or me or any of your listeners even. I'm just saying we all know people like that. So anything else in the criminal? So libertarian, I assume you're going to have differences on drug policy than... Uh, yeah, at least we need the to change the, the, the drug war. I believe that we need to decriminalize everything. Uh, and that's for both important reasons, right? Number one, it just doesn't work. You can ask almost any cop. They'll tell you that we are, we are not winning the war on drugs. Uh, I can personally attest to that based on nothing more than the number of times I've done CPR on young men who didn't realize there was fentanyl mixed in with whatever it was they were using. And of course, the other element of that is more of a libertarian uh, ethical perspective, which is, frankly, even if it did work, the government doesn't have the right, doesn't have the authority, uh, doesn't have the, you know, the the ethics that would be required to make decisions for me about my body. Yeah, we have a lot of talk about the the fentanyl crisis, and and libertarians have been saying for a long time. Listen, and now. We I have to give a disclaimer. I don't think people should go around doing drugs. I don't think it's good for you. I would recommend you don't. I would, if you're my friend, I would tell you that is not a good idea. But if you were buying this drug at Walmart, it's probably not going to have a bunch of fentanyl mixed in it that's going to kill you because they want you to come back and get it again next week. That's right. And you would tell your friend that whether it was criminalized or not. Mm-hmm. But in a in a criminalized market, meaning a black market, these are the problems you get. The fentanyl problem is not at its core a drug problem. It is a fraud problem. And we're having a hard time getting rid of the fraud that the use of fentanyl represents uh, because it's a black market. Mm -hmm. This is the problem. We don't have full disclosure. We do not have trusted providers. Uh, the providers that we have uh, today are definitionally criminal, and that means you're going to have a, a weird set of, of uh, people who uh, are the purveyors. And you also don't have uh, people sort of monitoring, uh, demanding transparency. You don't have a market that punishes people who do not accurately disclose. Uh, you certainly don't have access to courts. Uh, you certainly can't sue someone and say, well, he said it was this and it turned out to be that. That's not a thing. And of course, this is the problem we see in every black market. We have black markets uh, 
in sex work that it makes that business extremely dangerous. Uh, we have a black market in immigration that makes that extremely dangerous. We have black markets all over that the government creates whenever it criminalizes something that our culture is not ready to give up. And prohibition is the leading example. So you mentioned immigration. That means I've got to got to check in and see. And I don't even know where I'm at still on this because it's a complicated issue. Libertarians are split. On immigration, you've got your open borders libertarians and you've got your uh, reform the system and make it as easy as possible to get through the border libertarians. Which one of those uh, would you closely align with? Uh, I do think you have to make it as easy as possible. Uh, I think the road to an open border really means reforming the system. In other words, you're not going to be able to flip a switch and go to open border as a political sense or even as a practical sense. Uh, The American people want to know who's coming into the United States. And I don't believe that that should be a big deal. When I worked for the White House, we could clear someone in in an hour and a half. That's weird. (laughs) You can get into the White House in an hour and a half, but it takes you how long? Uh, Years just to stand in line but years to get paperwork, years more to get citizen. This is a weird system. I think the objective has to be to get to a system where people can check in if there's not a warrant, right? If there's not some particular reason, uh, and I'll grant you, there may be specific security reasons why you don't want you know, people like you and me coming across the border. But uh, anybody else should be uh, cleared in. In other words, the government should have to have an obligation on it of demonstrating why this individual should not be allowed in. I, you, you basically just described my exact stance on immigration. I didn't want to tell you what it was beforehand, but I believe you should arrive at the gate. They should check, make sure that you didn't just murder your entire family and you're on the run right now. Uh, so check and make sure that you don't have warrants, that you're not on the run for some type of crime, a, a violent crime yep. where you harm someone and there's a victim. Uh, and right. and if there isn't, and we can work with the countries to to smooth out that system and make it easier, and if there isn't, then come on in. You know, they got printers, they can can print off some paperwork, they can uh, print a license, like, it shouldn't be that hard. No, it shouldn't be that hard. And one of the things that we need to get the message out about is the fact that immigration is good for the United States. Mm -hmm. There is no argument that says that the population of the United States is better, healthier, uh, at 330 million instead of 430 million, just to pick two crazy numbers, right? Uh, There's no legitimate logical argument that says that we should stay as small as as we are if we believe in our system and our ideals our ideals we should be welcoming people in literally by the boatloads and uh welcome them in fast if it were up to me the way to handle for example cuba would be to empty out that nation (laughs) yeah Yep. I, you know, the argument you always hear is the, the welfare state. You can't have people just coming in when you can take. And, and so the idea, of course, more people coming in, as long as they're not net takers, they're, they're net producers, that's only good for the economy. But 
I don't know, and I don't want to give a, a blanket statement for all immigrants, but I don't know That's what it's my job. I'll give the blanket yeah, statement. I don't, you keep going. I don't know what immigrants people have met, but that is not my experience in meeting people that came here from other countries, that they just come here and live off of the government and live off of welfare. In fact, the hard the hardest workers I know are people who came here from other countries. Nate, not only are you correct anecdotally, uh, but the data back you up. Immigrants not only are net payers into the system, and by the way, that's because of the laws that are already on the books. You can't mm. get access to the vast majority of welfare programs if you're uh, not a citizen. So legally speaking, we've already you know, taken care of that. Of course, you and I would get rid of the welfare system anyway, but mm -hmm. we'll talk about that later. <laughs> not only is all of that correct, but... And here's something that a lot of our friends on the right are just unwilling to hear. So let me say it slowly. Immigrants are better in terms of net payments into the system as opposed to outs of the system than people born in the United States. Yep. That's something that people, people born in the United States are always doing silly things like having children and taking advantage of our public school system, which is the big complaint, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas immigrants don't uh, typically in the same numbers bring children, right? Immigrants are very often young adults without kids. And when they're bringing extra people, it's grandma and grandpa. So uh, even compared to people born in the United States, it's it's good for our economy. Yeah, I really hope that's something that uh, if there's anyone right-leaning listening right now, um, that to me just shouldn't be the thing that people are worried about. And yet again, like you mentioned, this is a black market, just like we have the fentanyl problem uh, with drugs. The things that people are worried about with immigrants, a, a, a terrorist coming across the border, something like that, that someone that's on the FBI watch list or what, whatever the list is uh, that they're on. Right. Um, if you fix this system and made it much easier for people to come through, and then we could agree on a on a border. I don't want to see the W word or anything like that, but we could agree on some type of a border and people coming through a specific specific areas. Uh, you would actually be able to solve the the danger problem by checking everyone as they come in. It, this doesn't well, take that's exactly years. right. The, the real danger, I understand upwards of 2000 people died last year coming across our border because of our black market system. I just spent uh, a couple of days in Arizona last month. And I got to tell you, at, at the border, I got to tell you, it was a real hair raising experience. I met with uh, ranchers who own property along the, the border, who told me that they would routinely find dead bodies on their property. I talked to the sheriff's office. I talked to uh, Customs and Border Patrol uh, agent uh, and libertarians down there. And the, the thing that I came away with was a greater appreciation, shame on me for not realizing this earlier, of just how bad the results of the black market are. People are uh, living as... Uh, effectively as modern slaves in indentured servitude because they're paying people coyotes is what we call them on the other side of the border right to get them to the border and then they have to pay someone else 
to take them from the border to the interior of the uh, state, whether that's Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, California. And then, of course, uh, they, they, they don't have the cash to make all these payments. And so they promise a certain amount of, of labor and they are held in virtual captivity. It is a horrible situation. Not to mention the couple of thousand deaths the result from all this human trafficking. This is the result of a black market. So I query if we're really concerned about safety, if this is really a humanitarian concern, how much worse would it be? This is a rhetorical question to which I do not have an answer. How much worse would it be if we accidentally let in a terrorist than uh, killing 2,000 people and committing dozens of thousands, hundreds of thousands every year to indentured servitude for trying to keep that one terrorist out. Now, I also got to tell you, if if you're a terrorist, you can get in today. Mm-hmm. We do not have a system that precludes bad people from getting in. They typically don't go to the CBP and say, you know, here's my papers. Can I get in? Yeah, they're going to find a way in, and there's, I'm sure, numerous in the country already, plenty of them uh, that uh, that we don't know about and, and some that people do. And uh, just like, once again, it, it is close to the drug war, uh, trying to stop someone from harming themselves uh, with, with whatever drug it is, is actually leading yeah. to tens of thousands of deaths from fentanyl. And trying to stop this one person who, if you yeah. fix the immigration we, system, you could we have the worst of both. Them. Yeah, you're, you're getting you're getting the result of a of a black market uh, on both fronts right now. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the it's other, really a horrible situation. The other things I have uh, written down that I wanted to ask you about ask you about. Of course, a lot of people talking about we could. You tell me where you want to go. You've got thoughts on the COVID regime, and you've got thoughts on what we're doing with uh, Ukraine and Russia right now, and you tell me which direction you want to go. Those are two different issues. Very different. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't like where we are with Ukraine because I do not believe uh, a lot of what American military policy is based on is true. I, I do not believe that Ukraine is squarely in uh, the interest of the United States on a long-term strategic level. Uh, I, I appreciate why, you know, we're all upset about how powerful and aggressive Russia is. And I don't mean to downplay that. But if there is anything that we have learned from this, it is that Russia was not last year able to legitimately threaten to overrun member NATO nations. We have learned that that just wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. Now, if the American government, if the American military, if the CIA believed that it was, that's another issue. Uh, shame on them because that's an intelligence failure. We need to get out of the business of frightening the American public into supporting whatever it is the military industrial complex wants to do next. I believe that we need to be out of NATO. 
I believe that we do not need the forward deployment of bases the way we do now. I think our participation in NATO and keeping troops in Europe undermines European security. It is a welfare program for those European nations' militaries. If they really do fear Russia, if they really feel that that is a rational uh, approach to their defense, then they need to spend more money. Uh, I don't mean to sound uh, heartless, right? But they got to grow up and make decisions for themselves that are in their own interests. Oddly enough, um, that Donald Trump said the same thing when he was over there. And so one of the things that he was actually pretty good on uh, was telling yeah, the him. The difference is I'm not being arrested this week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Big difference. Well, it's, other, it's, it's, other sorry, it's that, only same. Thursday. Yeah. Other, other than that, it's all the, basically the same thing. Uh, it's all yeah. the same flavor. <laughs> That's one of the things that we try to give him credit for every once in a while are uh, some of those foreign policy uh, things that he did. But yeah, we've got, uh, you know, when it comes to military bases, we've got uh, official numbers like 750. It gets up into the thousands. If you look at others, I can tell you I personally have been to U.S. military bases that we don't officially have. And uh, yeah. so there's, there's more of them uh, out yeah. there. Installations, mm -hmm. facility installations and facilities, right? Yeah, we, and then there's stuff that don't even show up as facilities and installations. Oh yeah, we we share bases with other countries uh, that we don't officially share bases. They're not on with our books. Countries. Just yeah. because we've got fifteen hundred dudes there doesn't mean it's our facility. I mean, I've been to a straight up military base. I mean, it was all it was a U.S. military base, and they told us they're like, "This is not a U.S. military base. Like the this is not we're." Uh, I, w I won't say the country right now that, that, that I was in, but they're like, don't, you know, this is not a U.S. base. This is their base. Right. And we're just hanging out with them, you know, for the it's last just 20 years. It's a coincidence years. that you're able to get uh, French fries uh, on, <laughs> on campus. That's it's a coincidence. That they good were, luck. That it's a coincidence. They were paying a U.S. band to come play at their base, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that doesn't exist. <laughs> That's the fact that everyone on base knows the second yeah. stanza to the Star Spangled <laughs> Banner is a complete coincidence. Yeah. And so we definitely have uh, we've expanded ourselves a little bit too much when it comes to Ukraine. That's a good point that uh, it's clear that Russia is not just able to run over these NATO countries. And that was the fear that a lot of people were sold. We have to stop them in Ukraine or we'll have to stop them. Uh, in Poland or wherever else it's going to be. And uh, it turns out you can stop them at Eastern Ukraine and they yeah. can't make their way to the capital. Exactly. But they were a huge threat to all of those other countries for sure. Now, the other, uh, clearly we've sent a ton of money over there and I'm sure we would both disagree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, we're essentially fighting a proxy war and it's barely a proxy. I mean, we're, in my opinion, I would argue we're, that we're at war. Yeah, that exactly. I was going to say we're at war with Russia right now. We're at war. If the president of the United States goes over there, right? If if we have upwards of a thousand troops there as contractors, trainers, overseers, transitioners, making sure the stuff gets to the right place. If we've spent over a hundred and ten billion dollars. And if we're manufacturing stuff just for this war, remember, this isn't just, uh, you know, Jeeps from the 60s that were out <laughs> in the cornfield behind the uh, the base where you can get the French fries. It's not just a bunch of Toyotas that we're sending over there. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is stuff that we're manufacturing fresh, just like we would for ourselves if we were in, the, in a, an admitted uh, open war. 
if you're doing all those things, you're at war. That's, you know, when they took down that drone last week and it was, and everyone was all up in arms about how we, we need to send them a warning. This was unprofessional. They said it was a unprofessionalism in the war place is what we called it. I was like, what are you guys talking about? Like you're, you're literally waging a war against them right now. Just call it what it is. You know, sure, right. they, they took it down, but don't act like y- you're not literally fighting that country right now at the moment. Right. Uh, I think we called them poopy heads, and I think the right <laughs> response from Moscow is that's right. Mm-hmm. I also like the uh, the White House spokesperson who uh, was asked, well, you know, what if it was a Russian drone similarly as far from san francisco or new york and his response is that's not the same thing Mm. Mm. okay well no it's not and i i i think i'm glad that uh we wouldn't like foreign drones with military ambitions uh near san francisco and new york you know i don't have a problem with that piece of the puzzle the piece of the puzzle that gives me pause is using uh, their similar reaction, a reaction similar to ours, as an excuse to escalate. Mm-hmm. What? It's somehow, you know, if you didn't want it shot down in the first place, what's it doing there? It's this American empire mentality that, that we've got the right to do all of these things around the world and no one else does. We're the imperialists. <laughs> yeah. You can't be the imperialists. We are. <laughs> we are the hegemon. And people fall for it. You know, we just crossed the 20-year anniversary of uh, Iraq II, the invasion, you know, and I I told everyone um, I was a supporter of that. I was in high school. I didn't know what I was supporting. I was supporting because everyone on the news had told me that they were going to kill us and that we needed to fight them over there so that we didn't have to fight them over here. And well, uh, it is a big it is a big part of the military industrial complex to convince us of the of what they want us to believe for the political support. Right. Mm-hmm. That is something that's a little bit different uh, today that we appreciate that has been going on for a long, long time that we did not appreciate uh, in the past. And I hope that more people are awakening to that concept than uh, when I was in high school, for example. Uh, but the, the other thing that needs to be said, I believe, is that more Americans today are ready for an anti-war message than ever before. I don't think that there are examples that the majority of the American public would point to and say that particular military intervention was a good idea. You know, it cost us some lives. It cost a bunch of foreign lives. It cost a certain number of billions of dollars, or in the case of Iraq, you know, trillions of dollars, but it was worth it. I don't think those examples exist. No. So, you know, whatever you might say about the U.S. military's prowess in a tactical sense, you know, good at blowing things up, death and destruction, good at moving assets and people, good at controlling places, uh, as good as we are at all those things, I don't think it can be fairly said that military intervention has proved to be successful in terms of achieving what Americans would say are long-term strategic advantages, advances in our interests. I just don't think that that's the case. 
No, and I and um, I just also the the alliance that we can see forming between Russia and China right now to me is very concerning, and um, it I I'm I'm worried that we're we're playing around a little bit too much. We're we're playing too many stupid games, and we're going to start winning stupid prizes. We did this thing with the war on terror, <laughs> and we can go screw with those countries, and they don't have the ability to screw with us back yet or anything. And and it's now like they think they've graduated to oh, we can screw with Russia and China, and it's going to be the same thing. We can push them around. Well. And we might have pushed them together and they could be stronger than us. And I don't want to find out whether or not that's true. I don't think anyone could. You're exactly right. I don't think anyone can be surprised that that these nations find comfort in each other's arms. I worry about that alliance, you know, becoming something that includes uh, certainly Iran over time. Uh, it would not shock uh, the, the anyone listening to your program that Saudi Arabia could potentially be lost to such a uh, such a coalition, uh, nations like India that we consider allies today. I I don't think that you can plan on them being permanent allies when China is such an important trading partner with them. Yeah, I worry about that a, a great deal. I also worry about. Chinese government behavior a decade from now, a couple of decades from now, when their economy is not doing so well. They have made such horrible investments and such large horrible investments, leveraging 20th century technology, expanding militarily in ways that uh, will not give them economic benefits, uh, a horrible system in terms of allocating the in investment resource. I worry what happens when their economy does not do well and they need to find a new resources abroad and b uh, an excuse to hold their domestic policy together by proving uh, that they're the bad boys on the block in in Asia generally and in the Pacific. I worry about all of that going the wrong direction on us. I would say they also can see that potential on the horizon, and that's why they're shaking hands with the people they're shaking hands with right now. They're, they're, yeah. They've always been looking very far out into the future, and uh, yeah. I think that's what's happening. And uh, yeah. the things that we're doing are, yeah. are not making it better. Um, I want to, uh, because we will come up on time here, I want to talk a little bit of Libertarian Party stuff uh, that we, we talked about a little bit beforehand. I told you that I... I left the party in 2020 uh, because I did not like the messaging. I didn't hear what I thought I should yeah. hear from the Libertarian Party. Yeah. We're um, going to get you back. You probably heard plenty of people say things like that. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I completely understand. I have heard it from a lot of people, uh, some of whom have left the party, some of whom have not left the party but are on the edge. Uh, look, uh, a lot of the change in leadership in the party was driven by this disappointment. There have been disappointments, uh, particularly with our presidential campaigns, with the national campaigns in the past. And I think that those come from a couple of different places. The, the big disappointment is in our missing opportunities to, to differentiate ourselves from the other parties to brand ourselves in a real principled fashion. We need to run a campaign 
that leads with policy, leads with our policy principles, and cleaves a very hard edge against Democrats and cleaves a very hard edge against Republicans. Our job is not to find common ground with Republican and Democratic politicians. Our job is to differentiate from them and to find common ground with Republican and Democratic voters, and especially independent voters, right? Mm -hmm. Many Americans, we can argue about whether it's most and what that means, but many, many Americans have a libertarian leaning. They may not realize it. They may not even know what the word libertarian means. And the fact that they don't know what that means, I believe, is uh, exhibit A in the case against our past presidential campaigns. You know, when you look at, and by the way, this is not just a branding for the sake of branding type of argument. Even if the only thing you cared about was getting as many votes as possible, which I don't think should be our objective. Our objective should be reaching as many people as possible with a real authentic message so that we make our party memorable and relevant. Even if all you want to do is increase the number of votes you got, you have to lead with something that distinguishes you from the competition. And I believe that this is what went wrong in our past campaigns. You look at a guy like uh, Gary Johnson, who reached double digits in the polls before forgetting the name of a town in Syria, mm -hmm. right? And everything imploded on it. Contrast that with Donald Trump saying, and again, you and I are no <laughs> fans of, of the Donald, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the list is long of the ways I don't appreciate Donald Trump. But contrast that with Donald Trump saying, I could probably shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose many voters. Mm hmm I'm going to go with shooting someone on Fifth Avenue is worse than forgetting the name of a town in Syria. I would agree with you on that. In fact, I didn't think of all the reasons that I, I didn't vote for Gary Johnson, even though I was a libertarian at that time, of all the reasons Aleppo had nothing to do with it. We're I, I, I think that was just an easy thing for the media and also it plays into the isolationist uh, it idea. totally does. So. And my point is that I'm not sure that Trump was wrong about that funky statement <laughs> in the sense that if you didn't like him, you knew why you didn't like him. And if you did like him, you knew darned well why you liked him. And there are any number of people in his base that would have stuck with him if he was accused of committing some horrific crime, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whereas Gary Johnson never gave anyone a reason to rally around him. When the media started throwing him under the bus, everyone just evaporated. It was like rats off of a sinking ship. If your message is what Gary's was, I'm uh, fiscally conservative like a Republican and socially liberal like a Democrat, that's no message. No. You haven't given me a reason to support you. You've defined yourself in terms of the other parties. Uh, you've given a lot of Americans, by the way, two reasons to dislike you instead of one. <laughs> and by the way, it's not even true. You're lying to those people. 
Republicans are no longer fiscally conservative. We're not like them. And, and, and we're not socially liberal the way Democrats are, who I don't think are very socially liberal at all. We don't run around canceling each other and saying you need to fall in line with our opinion or we don't believe you should have, you know, interactions with the American public. That's a weird place to be if you're, you know, the Democratic Party is a, is a clown show the last several years. So I just don't think that he was doing any any good for the party. I don't think he was doing any good for his campaign, per se. I don't think he was telling the truth to the American people. And for this reason, yeah, he was able to achieve double digits in the polls, but it disappeared quick. But it, it's just, it, it didn't feel like libertarianism to me, achieving double digits in the polls. You know, it was a guy trying yeah. to soak up some disaffected voters from Republicans and Democrats, but that does nothing to actually grow uh, the, the message, Agreed. the real libertarian. He had a running start. Uh, the media and uh, any number of donors were willing to accord him some credibility because he had a background in public service and public policy, and he seemed like a nice guy. I get all that. And, and Joe... Uh, in the last cycle, was not accorded all of that, uh, you know, being someone who had no background in public service, no background in public policy. She was not given that. And then on top of it, she did not run a crisply differentiated libertarian uh, leaning, libertarian principle forward, uh, policy oriented campaign. She just didn't. And we missed the opportunity to make tremendous hay out of the whole vaccine mandate regime, which played squarely into our wheelhouse. We completely whiffed uh, like a kid on a curveball. It was uh, a real a real shame in the sense it was a missed opportunity. So we know the elements that are important. I'm running a, a campaign that is policy focused. Uh, we're running on a platform that we call the Gold New Deal. It is a set of very uh, transformational ideas, starting with giving uh, states their right to opt out of federal supremacy and pursue nullification. Uh, we talk a lot about criminal justice reform, ending the Federal Reserve System, getting rid of the direct relationship between individuals and the federal government by getting rid of the IRS and forcing the federal government to go to state legislatures for, for funds. Uh, we talk about uh, school reform, getting rid of anything that violates bodily or corporate individual autonomy. So it's a very uh, forward, uh, principle forward uh, campaign. We believe that we can back that up because I've had a, a background experiences in public policy and public service, which a lot of Americans expect in a candidate and it's what allows us to go out there with a very transformational package, because if you can't back it up, you're going to look slightly goofy. Well, is that uh, the, the next thing I was going to ask you was, uh, let's say we're at the Libertarian Convention, the delegates are about to vote, and uh, let's say we could assume who a couple of the front runners would be. Um, why, uh, uh, probably including some of the stuff you just said, but so you're going to talk to those people, why you over... Uh, who we yeah. could also assume are going to be on the ballot. Uh, the the background in public service and public policy really matters a lot. It wouldn't matter so much if you weren't out there with the most aggressive ideas. 
but we we need to be. Mm-hmm. And we need to do that in as credible a fashion as possible. We need to be able to back up our ideas with a candidate who's been around the block in terms of public policy so that, yes, donors, yes, media, but especially the bulk of American voters will open their ears. A lot of Americans still view the presidential campaign as an opportunity that is characterized as a a race among individuals. And so if they can't look at you and at least imagine you being qualified for the job, their ears are going to be closed. You could have the greatest philosophy uh, since sliced bread, but it's not relevant to the race. And I'm interested in the horse race, so I'm not going to pay any attention. And that's what we need to break through. If they can't see you behind the desk, then the the game's off. The game's off. Otherwise, you're just an activist, and I could pay attention to you in an odd number year, right? Mm -hmm. I don't need to pay attention to you in 2024. 2024 is an opportunity because of the presidential race. I told you we were going to have a good conversation today. I knew it was going to be, I knew it was going to be great. And uh, we're coming up on time now. So I, I, I really enjoyed it. It seems like we align on a lot of stuff. You know, I'm not a member of the party yet, uh, but I am. We're going to win you back. I, you know, the only, one of the only things still keeping me out is that I do have a show and I try to remain uh, you know, I, I want to sure. remain objective about everything. That. And so I want that at least appearance of objectivity when, when we're talking about libertarians, Republicans, and Democrats, you know, not be a I member. appreciate that. So that that is one of the only other sticking points. Uh, well, on that right point, now. Uh, but, give me a chance to talk to you a year from now, and we'll see if we can win over some of your uh, viewers. How's ab- that? Absolutely. I'm going to put a link to your uh, to your website in the show notes. It's, it's MikeTermont.com. Uh, but yep. if if anyone's confused on the spelling, the uh, the link will be. Yeah, in- you'd have to spell it right. M i k e t e r m a a t dot com. Uh, the other thing that's that's easier, uh, people can go to goldnewdeal.org if they want to. That's okay. uh, where the platform lives. Goldnewdeal.org. All right, I'll put that link right there, Mike. Thank you so much for your time. Thank and, you. Um, it's really uh, it's been a great pleasure. You have a great program. And so much to talk about. We'll do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You take care. Have a good day.